Good to be here tonight on a wonderful, warm Bay Area Wednesday. I can actually deal with the weather when it's like this as long as it's not burning my eyebrows off. So this is really good, and it's good to be here with you all. In the essence of time, we're going to kind of just jump in a little bit. Shoes. I don't know what it feels like to walk in your shoes. I don't know what it feels like to see the world from the perspective that you do. I don't know what it feels like to make different kinds of negotiations and understand your place in the world and think about the different issues that happen from place to place. I don't know what it feels like for our white brothers and sisters to be a majority culture person. I don't know what it feels like to you know, operate in a story that you know, has kind of different historical rhythms to it. So I don't know what it feels like to walk in those shoes, but I do know what it feels like to walk in these shoes. And so tonight, I'm going to talk to us a little bit out of that context of these shoes. I think as we think about the conversation of race and violence, one of the things that I want to hold up for us is that I think, you know, I want to appreciate the multi-layered ways in which race and violence plays out in ways that are outside of just the black experience of which I understand and of which I'll be speaking from tonight, but wanna just kind of lift that up because I think that's important. So as we start, first thing I want to ask is for all the people of color in the room to stand up. I just want you to look around at each other now, all of those who are still sitting in your seats, I want you to look down at your skin. Does it not have a color? Do you have no color? So I'm going to ask a question again. I want to have all the people of color in the room stand up. I think y'all see where we're going tonight. Let's give yourselves a hand for participating as we get ready to... The reason I wanted to use that frame for us is because I think it's important for us to realize that in our world, we are operating within a system that has told us and continues to tell us who belongs, where they belong, and how they belong, and how we need to show up. And even more so now, we're living in a system that tells us how we need to feel, who we need to feel about, and how we need to respond to different issues that are happening in our world. I think particularly as we think about the moment that we're living in, I think this moment that we're in is a very profound moment. I think with respect to the history of our country and particularly the last 40, 50 years, I don't know that there is or has been a moment uh, that has been as packed with emotion as times are right now as people are negotiating and thinking about this issue of race and particularly the ways in which that has played out with respect to violence. And we'll talk about a couple of those things. It's funny because, well, maybe it's not funny, but it's interesting that when Obama got elected president, People said we were now moving into a post-racial America. I know, I, I laugh too. And I like the way that one of my bishops in New York says that. He says uh, what Obama's presidency was for us was that liquid that they spray on a murder scene after blood's been cleaned up. What do they call it? Is it like luminol or something like that? It's that Obama's presidency was that liquid sprayed on the scene of America that helped reveal the existing racism that was actually very present and had always been there. And so I think a part of what I want to invite us to kind of think about tonight is this whole idea that we have opportunities to think about how do we, as one of my friends, Jer Swigger says, how do we listen longer than feels comfortable? 
How do we lean in, hear the lament, hear the stories of others, and allow that to inform the way that we respond? I first want to start off, have us looking at this stereotype content model. Now, this is an interesting image because there's a doctor who studied the way that our brain functions, those of us in American contexts, and this is a very kind of deep study, so I'm going to give, you know, maybe somewhat of a light, almost irresponsible way to handle this, but for the sake of purposes of our time, what they found was that our brains are reacting and responding to different people in different ways with a level of high warmth and competency and low warmth and competency. And what she found was that our brains are responding. This is all about the system. Everybody say the system. I'm going to turn you into a black church tonight. Everybody say the system. There you go. You just got your black church card. All right. And so in any case, in this system that we have the lowest level of emotional warmth and the lowest level of competency is around poor blacks, around former felons, what they call welfare queens, undocumented immigrants, Muslims, and former felons. That when we see these individuals, our brain is literally not lighting up with warm emotion. Neither do we have competency in the sense that our brains aren't orienting around, we feel like we know how to deal with these people. But we are also socialized in a system that causes us to think you know, with high emotion and high competency around what the image shows, whites, middle class, Christians, and housewives. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what a Christian looks like, you know, but that's another story for another time. But when we see images that reflect who it is that we feel those people are, we have a high level of warmth, we have a high level of competency. All this has to deal with the system, and I think as we think about the system of race and the system of racism that has played out in our world, it bids for us the question to say, how are we gonna avail ourselves to actually be instruments that resist the kind of violence that racism ushers in? So I wanna talk about kind of what had been the big moment a little bit, Ferguson. And so how many of us have been aware of Ferguson at some point in your life, right? How can you now not be living aware of Ferguson? As I think about racial violence, one of the things I think is important, I do a lot of training with the police officers here in Oakland around some of these same issues. And for those of you all who don't know, I follow Jesus and love that Palestinian Jew living on the underside of the Roman Empire. Me and him be tighter than 80 toes in a cowboy boot. So love Jesus very much so. But one of the things that has become real to me as I dealt with this issue of Ferguson was trying to help officers and help others realize that the uproar around Ferguson has less to do with Ferguson and Mike Brown and it had more to do with this larger story of black people experiencing racially fueled violence in a system that they feel they have no power to resist. It's interesting, Bill, my friend and I, he's going to share a couple words a little bit later, but we were talking earlier today on how in American history we celebrate the Boston Tea Party. Nobody calls it the Boston Tea Riot. We actually celebrate it as a part of American history when people decide, you know, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore, and we resist this kind of oppression. I want to invite us to think about there is a reaction that happens in people when they feel like they are experiencing a kind of racial terror and violence where people get to a breaking point. And it doesn't cause me to affirm violence or affirm rioting, but what I'm hoping we understand, as Dr. King said, is that riots are the language of the unheard, that there has been and continues to be a brewing pain and a brewing frustration because of how people have been hurt and how people have dealt with pain. 
I went to Ferguson along with several other faith leaders, and we were there on the ground while that whole kind of uprising was happening during that time. And one of the things that was very arresting for me was realizing that when racial violence is left unchecked in a system for people who don't have power, it terrorizes people on a very deep level. I was just at the Capitol yesterday in Sacramento, and it was interesting as I was walking up and down the hallways, and I was watching all of the lobbyists walk around, which primarily in Sacramento were affluent white brothers who were walking up and down the halls of the state capitol, controlling the political system, leveraging money and resources and power to control the political system. And as I walked up and down those hallways, the feeling was very chilling of realizing the reality of being powerless or being a part of a people whose story leaves you without power. And so when we were in Ferguson, we showed up realizing the effect that racial violence had had on the folks in St. Louis. The backstory that people don't tell is many of those young people who refused to go in their house after they saw Mike Brown shot had done so because for 20 years, they had lived inside of an oppressive system where they were stopped and interrogated and searched and ticketed and put in jail, some of them every month because of the way that they ran their system and it was organized as a debtor's prison where folks finally got to the place where people said that they were mad and they weren't going to take it anymore. I'm lifting up for us that we are living in a system that has told folks who is who and how we should feel about who is deserving of honor, who is deserving to be defended, who our resources and our money should advocate for. And when we abandon these systems and allow them to crush those who are living under the weight of these empire, it explodes in deep passion and in deep lament. And one of the things I want to invite for us to think about, particularly as people of faith, some of us that, or all of us who might be here tonight that find ourselves in that category, is that there is a role for us to respond and stand up and be in solidarity with those who find themselves living under the weight of this kind of racial terror and oppression. Got a quick video I want us to take a look at that shows us when we were there in Ferguson. And so that ended up being a day where when we stood in support and lament for what was happening in Ferguson, we all ended up going to jail. My brother Mike, myself, several others, Jim Wallace, some folks might recognize some people in that picture. We ended up being arrested and going to jail, but it was an important time for us to align ourselves, realizing that particularly as people of faith and people who are following Jesus, a part of our conversation must begin to think about how do we align ourselves with those who are carrying and experiencing the greatest burden living inside the system that we are living within. And one of the things that even when you move away from Ferguson that, you know, kind of slipped off the radars and the media stopped telling us was the conversation about the churches being burned down in the South. Then in the context of three weeks to a month, well, it was closer to a month, nine black churches were burned down in the South. My sister, who lives in Tennessee, which is one of the hubs of the Ku Klux Klan, they tried to bomb her church by throwing a Molotov cocktail through the window, but they didn't create it the right way, so it just burned the bathroom portion down and didn't burn the rest of the church. Now, when people are living in these realities where, because of socioeconomic problems 
and a whole lot of issues around that you guys will probably get into later around incarceration rates and how the drug war was played out in communities of color, particularly black communities, even though our white brothers and sisters use drugs at the same rate, if not more, than black and brown folks, that blacks were going to jail six to eight times more than their white brothers, that Latino brothers were going to jail four to six times more than their white counterparts, that our men were pulled out of the community. Did they make bad choices? Of course they did. But they were incarcerated instead of giving help, and we were left in a condition where we did not have men to protect the children. Young people picked up guns. And so not only are we killing each other, but we cannot look to the authorities to protect us. And we are also terrorized even in our own places of worship. That race, racial violence terrorizes people. But I think what we have to realize is that people of faith, we have an opportunity to heal. So I want to lift up a few things for us, and then hopefully we'll get into some space for some Q&A. And I'm really inviting us to think about some hard questions, even critiques or pulling in around what are some hard questions that we really feel like we want to ask and know about in terms of thinking about how do we respond? Like, how do we even think about, are there places for white brothers and sisters? How do our API community brothers and sisters step into some of these spaces? We want to, you know, certainly lift up space for all of that. But what I'm going to lift up for us is in Luke 3, John really packs this whole idea that a part of us being prophetic people means that we're supposed to look incredibly different. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to sound different. We're supposed to feel different. Go to the next slide that we're supposed to call for equity, we're supposed to call for justice, and we're supposed to call for accountability. And what I lift up is that if us following Jesus is not manifested in these realities for those who are actually bearing the greatest burden in our society, I think we have to really answer the question for those who are burdened, what relevance does our faith really have for a world that's broken? If it's not calling for equity, if it's not calling for accountability, and if it's not calling for justice. So that leads us to this question that I think I've been trying to answer myself, and I think we all have to ask ourselves. Go to the next one. We either are going to be chaplains of the empire, we are going to be complicit and continue to support an imperial system through our silence, through our omission, through our fear, that we're either going to be chaplains of the empire or we're going to be prophets of the resistance. And that's going to look very different for all of us that everyone isn't called to do it the same way, but we are all called to do it in some kind of a way. I talked to you about being in Ferguson and showing up in ways that made sense for me. But, you know, I want to bring my buddy up, Bill, who's going to share for about five minutes, and then I'm going to close us and take us to our Q&A time but talk about ways that it made sense for him. Bill, former police officer, former pastor who grew up, I would say not in the same world that I did, but we were building friendship and we were beginning to think about how do we experience the world and how do we think about responding to God and responding to those who are actually bearing the greatest burden in the system that we didn't create, but others created. And we've got brothers and sisters that are in pain. And so after I went to Ferguson the first time and I came back, I was talking to Bill and Bill said, you know what? I feel like the next time you go back to Ferguson, I'm supposed to go with you. And so we ended up going to Ferguson with one another, Black Ben and White Bill. And we ended up on the streets of West Florissant where all the news coverage and everything was showing. And one night as we were out there, just talking about, again, the racial violence and the way that it terrorizes folks. Go to this next image. We arrived there. Go to the next image. And 
There was a line with the police and the young people who were there on the street. There was about 150 folks outside, and we had just come back from eating, and I jumped out of the car and took off running across the street and ran into the middle of a crowd, and I recognized some young people that I had met there on the first time I was in Ferguson, and so I ran into the middle of the crowd. This was actually the night after I think I met Justin when we were out there at that Q Commons thing in San Jose, and I went running into the crowd and started positioning myself along with others between the young people and the police, and we had this long night, one of the moments where I stood next to this young chocolate sister with big cheeks, and she screamed for an hour with tears coming down her face, I'm a human being, I'm a human being, I'm a human being, you care more about a dog than you do me, you go home happy, I go home sad, I'm a human being. I realized that night as I stood next to her till close to 1.30 in the morning, that there was a pain going on inside her that wasn't even going on inside me, and that a part of me following Jesus meant that I had to hear that cry in ways that didn't diminish that, but in ways that informed how I needed to be called to live and respond to the gospel. We got back to the hotel, and as we're looking at images online, it was funny because we found this image, which was the cover photo of MSNBC, and on it, you see Bill standing in the middle of the street, and I was somewhere inside the crowd. And I just thought it was an interesting photo that helps us think about when pain is going on and racial violence is showing up in the lives of others. Every 28 hours, a black person is killed by a police security guard, vigilante, or corrections officer in the country every 28 hours. This is happening. Some of those might be justifiable homicides, but a lot of them may not be. We don't have a system that helps us understand that. Every time they start doing data stops around racial profiling, they find that blacks are two to three times more likely than their white counterparts to be stopped, and they're oftentimes not found to have committed a crime that we're living now in a world where dark bodies are suspected of being criminals. That if we don't find a way to respond and think about how the gospel calls us to think about loving our neighbor well, then that means people are gonna continue to languish under the pain of a heavy empire. I wanna invite Bill to just come up and talk about what it meant for you to step into some of this space as you cross the street. Good evening. So I want to share just a couple of pieces with you about my story that might help you place me in this particular struggle over race and violence. I was a police officer for six years, from 1989 to 95 in San Luis Obispo, and was retired medically after totaling my motorcycle on duty. After that, I went into ministry. But before that happened, while I was in the police academy, even in my early days as a police officer, I became very close. My closest friend from the police academy, Rich May, was later executed on the job in the streets of East Palo Alto as a police officer on January 7th of 2006 when he was shot in the face at close range by a troubled Hispanic young man. I've been an ordained pastor within the Association of Vineyard Churches for the, about 20 years. I left the pastorate nine years ago to get involved in domestic and international community development to fight poverty. I graduated from Fuller Theological Seminary this past June with a master's degree and an emphasis in studies around justice-based peacemaking. And I'm currently working as the founder and executive director of a small nonprofit. I met Ben about five years ago and have had the extreme pleasure of growing a very dear friendship with Ben. And we've been working together for a handful of years now and I'm working with him and part of the executive team for the Empower Initiative here in Oakland. Those are some pieces that will help place me in this particular story. What Ben asked me to share was really just some of the discoveries that I have been making about myself and the world around me with respect to race and violence. I've discovered that I've been on the move these last handful of years from the outside, 
feel like I've been on the outside of this issue to the inside of broken race relations. I've heard it said, probably Ben said it somewhere, that there are these three A's that help us understand and reflect on some of the transformation and formation that's happening in our lives. And they're articulate, advocate, and activate. As we get closer to an issue, we learn how to talk about it, we learn how to advocate for folks involved in the issue, and then we learn how to activate ourselves and other people. I discovered for myself as it related to the subject of racism that there were two other A's I needed to add to that on the front end, and they were awareness and accountability. I actually didn't realize that I had a blind spot as it related to racism. You see, I misunderstood racism as principally a personal power. And I've come to better understand that it's a systemic power in which there are actual personal expressions of it for sure in it. But by first trying to understand it as a personal power, I didn't feel like I was a racist. And so I've discovered that caused a huge blind spot for me with respect to understanding systemic racism and furthermore, understanding my complicity in systemic racism. What I discovered as those blind spots fell away is that I'm guilty. I wouldn't have been able to conclude that before, and so there was really no transformation that could happen in my own life. I couldn't grow to articulate, advocate, and activate because I didn't think I had any responsibility in the matter. But as these blind spots fell away, I discovered that I am guilty. I'm guilty of ignorance. I'm guilty of distraction. I've been guilty of silence. I've been guilty of inaction for too long, which in turn means that I've been complicit from a position of privilege in the perpetuation of systemic racism. Now, having said that, I want to be clear that I am not compelled or driven by my guilt. There's something I've heard the phrase white guilt thrown around as an awkward thing for white people and for people of color to sort of cope with white people who are wrestling with white guilt. As I think about any other form of guilt, that if we let our guilt condemn us and drive us and compel us, we'll often make a lot of bad relational choices. But I do think that our guilt needs to inform us. My guilt doesn't compel me, but it does inform me. And it drives me to Christ. When we recognize that we need Christ, we need forgiveness, we need healing, we need some transformation and some formation to happen in our lives that will help us become more like Christ, that often starts, at least in my life, with some sense of guilt. Some sense of responsibility for a position. Whether I knew it, chose it maliciously, didn't choose it maliciously, I find that I become aware, then accountable, and that helps me to grow to be able to articulate, advocate, and activate. I'll tell you what I am driven by. I'm driven and compelled to embrace the five A's of my faith because I'm compelled by what I believe about the world that God wants to make with us. I've discovered, and this is speaking to me for myself, by emphasizing a gospel of salvation rather than the gospel of the kingdom of God, I departed from God's love for justice. I had departed from God's character and the heart for the poor and the oppressed. I had sympathy from a distance, but I rarely had true empathy or, frankly, compassion, which is the model that I feel that Jesus has laid out for me to follow. I've discovered that I've come to recognize more deeply than ever that it's imperative to God. That if I desire to be with him and on mission for him, I must make social commitments to care for and liberate those who are oppressed by injustice. For me, a failure to do so is not simply a social ethical failure. It's a departure from God himself. And this is what theology looks like for me. I'll leave you with a few of the questions that I'm thinking about and living in deeply. Does the religion of Jesus have any practical help for people who are sick with racism. 
Does our gospel offer good news for relationships ravaged by racism? Was Jesus' pervasive message about the kingdom of God simply about personal eternal salvation, or is it something much bigger that involves the holistic repair of all relationships? And lastly, how badly have I as an evangelical, and perhaps how badly have we collectively as evangelicals, represented an incomplete gospel, particularly over the decades that I've been alive and trying to be following Christ and had roles in leading a Christian community. Those are the questions that I'm working with. Thanks. So as we wrap this and get ready to head towards questions, everyone say articulate, Articulate. advocate, Advocate. activate. Activate. That we want to get to spaces where the only way that we're going to be able to deal with this stuff is we've got to talk about it. And we've got to listen to one another, and we've got to learn how to talk about it and hear one another's stories. We've got to also begin to take roles where we begin to stand up for those with whom we discover are oppressed and marginalized, which means we're going to have to put ourselves into some risky spaces sometimes and leverage some of the privilege that we might have. And then we must see this as a part of our evangelistic call and duty to help activate and share and build up other people who can join God in making this fair and just world. Just hit a few of these slides as we, in ways that we did that, we launched ceasefire here. It's people that were following Jesus, the violence reduction strategy. Somebody might say, why would you include, you know, reducing gun violence and homicides in Oakland as a way of faithfully responding to racial violence? Because racial violence created a system whereby black people have been trained and socialized to distrust our own image so much to the point that we kill our own image. Now, here's one of the stats that's very important because people like to have this conversation about black on black crime. Everybody kills themselves. 93% of black folks kill black folks, 85% of white folks kill white folks. So we can just put the black on black crime to bed, right? We all kill ourselves, right? It's just something that we do, right? But we're killing ourselves a lot more than y'all killing yourselves, right? So these are ways that we responded. Go to the next one. We organize to build power, and we begin to come together as a way of responding to Jesus and following. We get ourselves together. We begin to listen to one another's stories, and we think about how can we build up enough people power to actually do something about the issues that we see. We don't just rage from our couch, but we actually organize and say, how can we work together to help make the world that God wants to build for others? And lastly, we build power to change systems. Go to this last video, and then we're going to go to our break for Q&A. Go ahead and hit play and start playing. This just happened last Wednesday. We had 1,000 people. Go ahead, you can turn it up. We had 1,000 people join us at the Capitol to change the world. And I Thanks for your questions, and Ben, whenever you're ready. Steve's gonna shoot those questions over. He's been the one compiling them, and so he has them in his head, so Steve will be shooting those questions over to you. Uh, There were a few questions asking for a definition of racism. Hmm, (laughs) that pops up a lot. So I'm gonna give you my definition of racism, because you can find a definition of racism on dictionary.com. So racism is a system by which white supremacy has defined certain human beings more valuable 
than others based upon their race. And it is a system that has power that is based upon white supremacy that determines who is more valuable based upon race. One of the things I want to invite us when we think about racism, because sometimes people will say everybody's racist. And with respect, if you just think about racism, you know, around thinking of someone worse than you should because they're race. I like to make a little bit of a distinction between the way that we talk about racism and having a prejudiced orientation towards some folk. Here's the example that I would give for us to kind of help us understand racism as a system, not necessarily as a behavior, right? That racism exists as a system, particularly for my white brothers and sisters that are out there. If you are racist against me within our American system, what are ways that that could show up for my own personal demise. Just some things that we could throw out. If a white person is racist towards me, what are some ways that that could show up in my demise? Anybody brave enough? Say it again. Not gonna hire you for a job. Go ahead, sister. Housing. Housing. Or I'll hire you I'll hire you, pay you less. All right, let's get a couple more. Avoiding. All right. There's a sense of invisibility that might exist. Say it again, sis. All right, lack of being served, right? If I, as a black person, am racist about white people, I think white people are less than me as a black person, how does that contribute to your demise? Violence? Okay. Well, I just want to hold for us is the imbalance because the system is created with power, with some power realities that none of us created, right? None of us created the system to be imbalanced with power the way that it is. Based upon these ways that white supremacy, not white people, but white supremacy, this idea that even if you go back through the history of America, whiteness is something that really emerged even more so over the last hundred years. Right, when it used to be folks were Italian and folks were Irish and folks were Greek and folks were this. And then at a certain point, it became obvious that it was important for folks to be white because if you opted into white, then you weren't black, right? And so that's what I would offer for us to understand racism as a system that is based on white supremacy that values one group of people over another group of people. And because of that system has power to infuse certain kinds of realities on certain kinds of people. There were a number of questions sort of focused on the moment that we find ourselves in. Do you think that we are in a moment of change and transformation, or is this just the lid has gotten blown off and people are venting? So I'll, I'll use Ferguson every time I'm in Ferguson. People ask me when I come back, how do you feel in Ferguson? We'll actually be back in Ferguson in a month. Um, I, I say every time I leave Ferguson, I am equally concerned and equally optimistic. So the answer to that question I would say is, I do think we are living in a different moment that isn't just kind of a controversial moment. I think we are in a space where people, um, we are in a pregnant moment that's either gonna give birth to a new way for us to function and be community here in this nation or I think we, you know, and I'm not yelling fire in a movie theater, or I think we run the risk of really having some big major problems continuing to happen going forward. I don't believe that people are gonna go inside 
in ways that they have in the past. I actually think that this moment is a moment and an opportunity where the church and people of value and people of goodwill are going to have to step forward and be committed to do some real listening, some real reconciliation, and some real healing. South Africa, when it was coming out of this moment, they did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission which allow people to actually really go through a process of admitting where folks messed up and how do we repent for that and how do we reconcile and do that. In America, you know, Dick Gregory, I like the way that he says it. He says, America is like a homeless person who just goes and puts on a tuxedo, but doesn't take a shower, and then comes in the room and wonders who's stinking, right? It's us that stinks, right? Our system, we still have not gone through that process, and I think that's what this moment is bringing us to, and I think unless we really do that in some real ways with some real reforms, then we're going to continue to have a lot of challenge. So speaking of reform, there were also a lot of questions about change, and I think they kind of boiled down to, do you think change is most effective from the top or the bottom? Mm -hmm. I'm a grassroots guy, so I, I, I always believe change starts at the bottom. I believe God changed the world by birthing a guy in a place like Oakland 2,000 years ago. You know, I always tell people Jesus was not from Danville. Jesus was from East Oakland. I mean, that's what Nazareth was, right? I mean, where's the place in Oakland that you go, can anything, I'm not going there. It's East Oakland, right? It's not Rockridge. I, you know, we want to go to Rockridge. But so <laughs> Jesus was from anywhere. He was from East Oakland. So I think if God redeemed the world, from that space, I think, you know, our social changes need to move in that same way. I do think grassroots power has to bring about change, but I agree, and I don't agree with her often, but I agree with Secretary Clinton in her comments with some of the Black Lives Matter group folks in the sense that you don't change this by just trying to change hearts. You change this by changing structures. So we have to change structures and hopefully people's hearts you know, change within those structures, but you have to change structure. That's the reason why we went to the state capitol. I just wanted to get a picture for this, right? We brought a thousand people from around the state of California, native brothers and sisters, white brothers and sisters, black, Latino, Asian American brothers and sisters, all from around the state, different faiths, different backgrounds, all came from the state to put pressure on them to simply pass a bill to collect the data for racial profiling. Not to end racial profiling, just to get the data. And they were fighting us on the data. We had to risk arrest just to get the data. So I think the movements are going to have to come from the people and through the people. But I think us understanding that structural reform is the way that we get the change. You know, in evangelicalism, we have, you know, these paradigms around individual salvation. And I think where that hurts us is we get this very individual frame. So we think that even the way things change, it happens in an individual way. So people say like, I'm not racist. Like that's changing something, right? Like, I'm glad you're not, right? That's good. <laughs> but we don't need just people that have like an individual experience like I'm not racist. We need to say like, how do we get together to ensure that our society is not creating a racist world for those with whom the system has been designed to create that for others. And so we all need to be working on the communal salvation of our system rather than just kind of individual transactional ways of being, in my opinion. Walk us through a couple of ways for us to get involved locally. Maybe you can speak to this, maybe elaborate on this a little bit more, Bill. I was talking with some friends of mine from a church out on the other side of the tunnel, and they were telling me, they said, Ben, we want to help Oakland. 
there ain't nothing wrong with people on the other side of the tunnel, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not trying to mess with folks on the other side of the tunnel, right? But they had this interesting frame where they said, you know, we want to know what can we do to help Oakland? So like, tell us what to do. And I told them, I said, I think that's the wrong question. I think it is the natural question, but I think it's the wrong question. Maybe it's not so much what do we need to do. Maybe it's more a question around what do we need to learn and how do we need to listen. And so maybe that is our do and action. I believe that the first thing we need to do is align ourselves closer to the pain because I like there's this new thing Cornel West has been saying that if suffering is not speaking, then nobody's telling the truth. That's one of them Cornell West things. You got to be half asleep to know what he's talking about, right? So it's this sense of, I think, what do we need to do? We need to realize, I like, you know, line that Blackaby says, find where God's at work in the world and join him, right? So there's a lot of work that's happening, you know, in and around people who are responding to police violence work with, you know, like organizations like Oakland Community Organizations, you know, folks like the Ella Baker Center, folks like, I'm trying to think other folks that might be, you know, kind of helpful in, I would lift up those two, you know, as a couple starting points that I would encourage people to go and sit in and be a part of those spaces, recognizing that my first commitment being here is simply to listen and learn. I would say go on night walks. Night walks have been happening every Friday for the last three years. Right. Every Friday, there's folks walking through neighborhoods. Go walk and listen to the lament and the story without having to check the box. What is this doing? to solve the problem. We always want these quick fixes. Like, okay, so if I'm gonna walk the neighborhood, is that gonna stop such and such? No, we're going to listen, we're going to learn. So I think if we make a life commitment to this kind of work and say, I'm gonna be committed to joining God in the world that he's making around racial injustice for the rest of my life, that means I can take a year to listen so that I can think about how God might speak to me. Do you wanna add anything to that? I don't live in Oakland right now. And so you know, the answer of what do we do as an Oakland resident, he would best speak to. Just personally, I feel like those five A's are really helpful to me. They might be for you just to think about. How do I grow an awareness? How do I accept accountability where I need to? How do I learn how to talk about this, articulate? How do I advocate for those who are on the bottom side of this system? And how do I activate myself, my family, my friends, my network to be able to get involved with systemic change? So I think there's a level of humility that we need to embrace. and. I'm sort of cut from a cloth where I'm trained as the empowered white guy to show up and solve problems for people. I'm here to do something for you. And that's a complete opposite posture that I feel like God's invited me. I've had a chance to participate in things, but it's as a learner, it's sitting in back. It's I don't know answers. I'm here with a little bit of self-discovery. I'd like to be vulnerable about that. I'd like to build some relationship with people who I've othered and practice love in the context of those relationships, see what I learn about myself and about them begin to put some of my personal relationships at risk because I start to speak out about things that are wrong. Uh, make a decision whether I think justice is sacred work, just like giving somebody the four spiritual laws is sacred work to us. Can I ask something while hanging right there in the space? Realize that a part of this discovery process is going to be messy, right? You remember when we were in Ferguson the last time when we went for the Ferguson October weekend together. And there was one night that I went to go, you know, spend some time with some of the activists there on the ground. And, you know, it was a whole lot going on that night. In any case, myself, my brother Mike, and another sis, we said, okay, we're going to stay here and work with some of them around some of this stuff. And Bill was in the parking lot. And Bill looked at me and was like, yeah, I don't think I'm supposed to go in there with y'all. I felt bad for him because it was this moment of this sense of, like, I don't belong in that space. And it's probably not helpful for me to be in that space with those folks. 
But I think that's a part of the experience and a part of the learning and a part of figuring out that there's some spaces that are for us to talk, there's some spaces that are for us to listen. And I think the more that we are just willing to align ourselves, you know, one of the things we're going to be doing with Empower next year is going to be creating some opportunities and spaces for folks to learn. So we'll have information for that going on in the future, but that's not a plug time for Empower. I would just say when we want something in the world, like, you know, for example, I'm taking my wife to go, you know, hang out over the weekend. So I was up all night trying to figure out what good restaurants do they have out there. So I'm doing all my due diligence on Yelp to figure out, you know, where's the four-star restaurant that I could pay three-star money. You know, y'all know that hell story, right? But I'm trying to figure out, like, how to manage that experience. We need to do that same thing if we're really committed to, like, God's conversation about racial justice in the world. I don't think we should give ourselves the out to say, well, nothing's available and I can't find anything, so I'm not going to do anything. One last question, I think that kind of speaks to some of the messiness that you just talked about. There are a number of questions that were, I think, expressing some frustration in, I've learned something or I've experienced something, I've made some movement in this direction, but there aren't people coming with me, Hmm. or it's difficult to motivate people to come with me. And in particular, it's difficult to motivate church people to come with me. What do you do with that frustration? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you do to motivate church folks whose feet is stuck in the mud. So here's the first thing that I think we do is to have compassion. Because me and my arrogance, I got a problem with arrogance. God is helping me, right? But one of the things I had to realize was 10 years ago, I was the guy that wouldn't do any justice work. That was 10 years ago. I was here in Oakland pastoring at a church with my four-button suit, and my dream was just to you know, have as many books and DVD preaching series and all that kind of stuff and be on the Word Network or whatever silly channel I wanted to be on. So I think the first thing that we need to do is have compassion, right? And recognizing that all of us are starting in this journey in different places. And so we need to have compassion. And we need to realize that people are needing to count the costs, you know, count the costs around like, what does it really mean for folks to show up, you know, and be aligned with some of this work. I used to run an organization called City Team, downtown Oakland. One of the reasons I knew I was going to have to leave City Team was stepping more into the justice world. I knew I couldn't risk losing donors because folks would stop giving to the poor because they were mad about my justice, right? So we need to understand that risk is going to be involved. But I think what we've got to do is we've got to continue with compassion, but we've got to continue to live this way, and we've got to begin to call and invite and continue to speak the truth for folks who need to hear that and call folks into the way that we feel like God is calling us to be. I don't think it's okay for us to let each other off the hook. So, you know, Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, I believe it is, speak the truth in love so that we can grow up into the head, into him who is the head, even Christ. So we need to speak to the truth to each other in a loving way and say, I love you, but we got to do something about this. And until we do something about this, we need to just recognize and hold that we're actually not living into the fullness of how God is calling us to be. And so it's not going to be easy, but I think all of us, you know, we've got to lean forward into this. And I think we've got to call folks in a loving way, but we've got to call folks into this lifestyle. But I don't think we can call folks into the lifestyle if we are not living into the lifestyle. And so we can't have just a lot of manufactured rage and social media advocacy, which is becoming like the new way of doing justice, right? It's learning how to share the video and tell somebody off. And like that doesn't really help anything. Right. You just Facebook rage or you just break your fingers. Right. But I think, you know, we need to begin to show up where the pain is the most concentrated and realize that we're going to be uncomfortable and invite folks into that. The other thing I would lift up is we need to begin to think about how do we start creating some liturgical and worship practices around pain and around suffering? 
So rather than us getting together to pray inside a church and pray in somebody's house, why don't we go out to an area where there's been violence, where there's been murder, where there's been expressions of injustice, and let's spend our time both praying and listening to the folks who are there. Let's actually, you know, sign up to actually be a part of some circles, recognizing we're going to go to this meeting, but we're going to listen to God and we're recognizing that we're probably going to be extremely frustrated, distrusted, and maybe pointed out in this meeting when we're actually trying to go help and be a listen, but I'm recognizing like we need to do this in order to actually build our own capacity to lean in and those that suffering. We've got to sign up for this. Jesus says, any man wants to follow me and woman, anybody that wants to follow me must first deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. I think we've got to get rid of this kind of way of following Jesus that's actually about risk aversion. We got to start thinking about what does it mean for us to follow the Palestinian Jew living on the underside of the Roman Empire that got killed by his imperial system. And if he was willing to give up his life in that context, I think the gospel then calls on us, what are we willing to give up in our own imperial moment? All right. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Bill. Much appreciated. There are some folks who are Regen folks and others who aren't, but I think we can all resonate with Micah 6.8, which is the great commandment. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy. And I think I'm gathering this one from tonight about learning and to walk humbly with your God. Something that we seek out to do and to live out at this church and something that we're going to continue to do in these next few months as we explore these various issues for us to learn about various things. I think most of us are privileged, which is why we are inviting different voices to come in and for us to learn from this. And so taking a place of humility and moving from that point forward. Thanks for joining us this evening. For our next series, we're still in prayer. We have all of these big issues that we are wanting to talk about and consulting with folks like Ben, this list of stuff. And I've asked Ben, hey, how would you prioritize this list of things? But if you have ideas, please submit them and we'll put them into prayer and uh, think about them, meditate upon them, and see who we can invite in to help us learn All right, have a good evening. Feel free to hang out. We have uh, ice water, iced tea in the cafe. Thanks.